So last weekend, Megan and I were in California. We were in uh, Napa Valley uh, to celebrate uh, a close friend's 40th birthday, somebody that I've known for over 20 years now, which is uh, hard to uh, believe. And, and when you have three children, it is nice every now and then to get away for a long weekend. And uh, Roy and Ann did a good job of keeping the kids. The house was still standing when we got back. Or I should say, Ann did a great job of keeping the kids. The house was still standing when we got back. Um, but for me, it's good to uh, also see some old college friends from TCU that I don't get to see very often because they live in Dallas and Fort Worth and uh, uh, Austin. But while we were there, uh, we toured some uh, beautiful vineyards. We ate at some great restaurants. But there was one vineyard that was really a remarkable uh, experience to see, and it's called the Palmas Vineyard and Winery. Uh, it is a 600-acre estate with 64 acres of vineyards. It was started by Dr. Julio Palmaz and his wife, Amelia. Now, Dr. Palmaz, you might have heard of him. He is a famous doctor of vascular radiology who years ago, back in the 80s, late 70s and 80s, he uh, created, invented the first balloon expandable heart stent. Uh, it was his design. Uh, he received a patent for it in 1985. It was named one of the top 10 patents of the 20th century. Uh, and so apparently, if you invent the heart stent, um, money is no longer an issue in your life. You don't have to deal with it anymore. And so the Palmazas have built a beautiful vineyard uh, and winery, and we got to take a tour of it, and it was really, really uh, impressive. Um, but what drove Dr. Palmaz in those early days was he lost a family member, I think it was his father-in-law, who, who died from a heart attack, and he was uh, absolutely determined to make a contribution to the field of cardiovascular health, and he did, and he invented the heart stent, and he sold it and was paid for it, and uh, it's just amazing. Now when people get a heart stent all over the country, all over the world, most likely they're using that heart stent that Dr. Palmaz invented years ago. He wanted to help people with heart health. Today, we're starting a new series that will go through February and into March, and it's called Matters of the Heart. And what we're going to do is we're going to focus on Galatians 5.22, where Paul lists what he calls the fruits of the Spirit, and I believe that the fruits of the Spirit are matters of the heart. When Paul wrote his letters to the early church, and remember Paul's letters are the oldest documents that we have in Christianity, when he wrote these letters to the different communities, he was usually addressing either one issue or in some cases multiple issues that were going on in that community. So in Galatia, here's a snapshot of what was happening. Paul had been there, and then he had continued on with his missionary travels. Um, he gets word that in Galatia, some other teachers had come, and they were basically convincing the people that before they could become Christians, they had to convert to Judaism. They had to be circumcised. They had to observe the dietary laws and the holy days. And, and they could have to do that before they could become Christians. And Paul was not happy about this. Uh, and this is what he writes about in Galatians. And so uh, he's not happy about this because he believed that Gentiles, non-Jews, had direct access to God through Jesus Christ. 
that Christ was the means of finding a relationship with God. Christ was the means of, of finding forgiveness. And it was not necessary to follow all of those Jewish laws, the laws of Moses, in order to become a Christian. So he hears about the false teaching. He's upset about it. And he writes this letter to the Galatians that we call uh, the book of Galatians. And in Galatians, Paul places a heavy emphasis on the role of the Holy Spirit. Um, he says, you know, the, the Holy Spirit is at work, and you have to trust that. And he talks a lot about that. And, and he also says, you know, in chapter 3, he says, because he doesn't believe you have to follow all these rules to become a Christian, we have this verse. There's no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male or female. For all are one in Christ Jesus. And then later on in chapter 5, he talks about the struggle that all of us face in our lives, if we're human, we face this struggle between the desires of the flesh and the, the, the desires of the spirit. Uh, he says, the work of the flesh, the works of the flesh are obvious, fornication, impurity, licentiousness, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing. He says, beware of these things. But he says, the fruit of the spirit, that's different. This is what you need to cultivate. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the marks of the Christian person. This is what you will have in your life if you truly follow Jesus and if you live out his teachings. These things will be present in the, in, in the way that you act, in the way that you live. And so if you want to know uh, what's going on in somebody's heart, then just look at the way that they treat other people. Just look at the way that they interact with other people. Just look at the way that they talk to other people. And that will, that will show you what's going on in their heart. Now, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, says this, You will know them by their fruits. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. You will know them by their fruits. If you want to see what's going on in the heart of somebody else, look at the way they act, look at the way they talk, look at the way they treat people in their lives, starting with their family and the people that they love the most. There's a guy that I've talked about over the years uh, here at Woodmont. He's a retired uh, Harvard professor. I referenced him in a, in a column yesterday. His name is Harvey Cox. And uh, 10 years ago, Harvey Cox wrote an interesting book that kind of coincided with his retirement from Harvard Divinity School and Harvard University called The Future of Faith. It's a great book if you're looking for something to read. But he basically says that in Christianity, he breaks the Christian faith down into three basic eras. The first he calls the age of faith, which was from Jesus until the time of Constantine. And he said in the age of faith, the early church was basically committed to doing what Jesus told them to do. And it was a smaller group and it was a very passionate group and that's what the age of faith was about. Then he says Constantine gets converted somewhere around 312 and Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire and a lot of things changed. Christianity spread rapidly and quickly all throughout that region and then later throughout the world. And, um, but, but here's what happened. He said that marked the beginning of the age of belief. And in the age of belief, everybody was interested in what are you supposed to believe? 
What are the right creeds? What are the right doctrines? We had these councils where people would argue over the Trinity and over what orthodoxy looked like and what heresy looked like. And Cox says that the age of belief lasted from Constantine all the way until the middle of the 20th century, sometime around 1960 or so. Then at that time, he said, we shifted into the age of the spirit, somewhere around the mid to late 20th century, and in the age of the Spirit, doctrine and creeds are not nearly as important as experiencing God, as being changed and transformed uh, through your faith. And Cox says that we're still unpacking this, but there are three reasons that he says, you know, now we have so many people that say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. You know, I'm all about spirituality, but I really don't like that, that, that church stuff or that religion stuff. Well, why do they say that? This is what Cox says. He says, first, it's a form of protest against religion because a growing number of people are dissatisfied with shrinking the faith down into prepackaged theological propositions and doctrines and creeds. Secondly, Cox says, uh, spirituality represents an attempt to voice the awe and wonder of creation that many feel is essential to human life without stuffing them into ready-to-wear ecclesial patterns. And then lastly, Cox says that spirituality assumes that there is much to be learned between denominations and even between religions. Nobody has a monopoly on Jesus. And if people tell you that they do, beware of those people. Nobody has a monopoly on the truth. There are different understandings of how to be a Christian and to what Christianity is, is all about. And so what you have nowadays are you millennials and younger people who are not coming back to the church of their parents and their grandparents and it's very painful uh, for their family, but there's a reason why this is going on. And a lot of it is because they say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Um, in this age of the spirit, uh, it's really important to experience God. It's really important to have your faith transform your heart. It's not just about memorizing scripture and memorizing creeds and, and, and doctrines but it's about changing your life. Now, there are some dangers in this age of, of people that are just spiritual but not religious. What are those? Well, one of them is that it becomes very individualized and even isolating. It's all about me and what I need. I will go and do my thing. I will go for a walk in the woods by myself. But Jesus taught us to live in community and to think about the needs of others. The other danger that I see is that there's a lack of accountability when somebody just says, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I mean, it doesn't take creativity uh, to, to point out what's wrong with the church. That's not new. <laughs> uh, that doesn't take somebody who has been enlightened. But there's a lot of value in the church and in organized religion. And part of it is we, we journey together in community and we hold each other accountable and we're also there to support each other when things go bad. Now what I wanna argue this morning is that it's not an either or. It's not religion or spirituality, it's both. We need both. We need the community and the accountability that's present in the church and we also need to be constantly growing in our spiritual lives and, and, and growing together. And, and in the church, we do this together. 
So today, I want to talk about the first two fruits of the Spirit that Paul identifies in Galatians 5, love and joy. And uh, just a few days before Valentine's Day, uh, gentlemen, it's four days away, uh, I think that perhaps the best description of love, and there are a couple different passages in the Bible, but I think, I still think the best description of love in the Bible comes in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is patient. Many of us are not patient. To be patient with another person means that you are slow to anger, that you are in control of your emotions, that you're calm, It's very important that we do everything we can to exercise the same patience with other people that God exercises with us. There's a story told about one of our presidents, Abraham Lincoln. There was nobody who used to treat Abraham Lincoln as poorly as Edwin Stanton. Uh, Stanton would repeatedly call Lincoln a low, cunning clown. He nicknamed him the original gorilla. He was not respectful to Lincoln. He did not treat him well. But Abraham Lincoln never responded or said anything in return to Stanton. In fact, he even decided to make Stanton his war minister because he felt like he was the right person for the job. And you can read about that in that book, The Team of Rivals. But Lincoln was always courteous towards Stanton, and the years went on, and Stanton continued to treat him terribly. Well, remember that night when Lincoln was assassinated at the theater... And they took him to a back room and they laid him out on a table. There over Lincoln's lifeless body stood Edwin Stanton. And looking down at Lincoln, he had tears in his eyes and he said, there lies the greatest ruler that this world has ever seen. See, for Lincoln, the patience of love and turning the other cheek had conquered in the end. True love requires patience. Even with difficult situations, even with difficult people, patience is a virtue in life. It is necessary when it comes to dealing with other people. We need patience in our marriages. We need patience in raising our children. We need patience in dealing with some of the people that we encounter out in the world because they're not patient. We need patience in traffic. But having patience with others is not a sign of weakness. It is a sign of strength. Love is patient, Paul says. Love is kind. Kindness is on the decline in our culture. Civility is on the decline in our culture. And yet it's amazing, it's amazing how far being kind will get you in life. If you're just nice to other people, that is a big part of figuring it out. Because there's some people that can't get that. Origen once said, to be kind means to be sweet to all. And in this very judgmental world in which we live, where we are constantly sizing other people up, where all of us are, are, are guilty of stereotyping and labeling others, where we're always putting people in a box, oh, that's a liberal, that's a conservative, you know, that person's this, that person's that. Uh, we might want to remember the golden rule. Treat others the way you want to be treated. What would it be like to be on the receiving end of some of the things that you say and do? So many of us find ourselves so busy. We're rushing from one activity to the next. We're rushing from one meeting to the next. We're even rushing from one day to the next. That we don't take the time to slow down and to be kind to the people that we encounter. The people with whom we interact. But kindness is much more than just mere indifference. 
It begins with the acknowledgement of another person, but it goes far beyond that. Uh, One definition of kindness is to be warm-hearted and considerate, to be humane and sympathetic. Jesus showed kindness all the time. Think about the woman who was caught in adultery. They brought her to Jesus. They said, this woman's been caught in adultery. The law says we should stone her. What does Jesus do? He says, okay, okay. Um, So whichever one of you is without sin, go ahead and grab this first stone. They all looked around each other and they're like, got us again. Some of us need to realize that kindness starts at home. It starts with our spouse. It starts with our family. It starts with our children, our grandchildren. It starts in the office. You can't change the world until you change the the situation that's immediately around you. Our world needs more kind people. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious. Uh, It's been said before that there are two kinds of envy. The first kind of envy is just wanting what other people have. I wish I had that house. I wish I had that car. I wish I had that marriage. Or I wish my kids were as well-behaved as those people's kids. Uh, I wish I had that life. But the second kind of envy is actually more dangerous. And it's kind of a mean-spirited kind of envy. It's not just, I wish I had that. It's, I wish they didn't have that. I wish they didn't have that nice house. I wish they didn't have such a wonderful family. I wish that that they didn't have such a prestigious job where he makes all that money and I don't make anything like that. That is a mean-spirited kind of envy, and that is the envy that is the direct contrast to the love that the Apostle Paul is talking about. Love is not boastful or arrogant or rude. It's not irritable or resentful. Healthy relationships have a sense of humility about them. Nobody likes to be in a relationship with somebody who's always more important than they are, whose needs always come before the other person. That gets old really, really fast. Uh, And let me say that, that I've always believed that there's a big difference between arrogance and confidence. Arrogance is a turnoff. Confidence is necessary. Arrogance makes people act and think that they're better than others. But confidence can be, a, can be a good thing. But nobody wants to be around somebody who's arrogant all the time, who feels like they're too good to do this or to do that. Now, all of us have been with people at uh, restaurants or grocery stores uh, or at the bank uh, or maybe even at church. You ever been at church around somebody who's rude? And I think it's safe to say that there's nothing more repulsive than a rude person because rude people do not care about the feelings of others. They only care about themselves and what they want at that time and at that moment. You ever been out to dinner with a group of like six or eight people and uh, everybody's having a good time, but there's one person, it might be a friend of yours, who's treating the server just very, very poorly. It's embarrassing. And... You don't want to say something because it's your friend, but then you're like, but I feel inclined to say something. This person didn't do anything to deserve this treatment. The way that we treat people in our lives, especially people that, 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 mean that we may not know well, that, that they may not be able to help us, the impression we leave upon them is important. People say, you know, you might forget what somebody said or what they did, but you'll never forget how they made you feel. And that's true in life. You won't forget how somebody else made you feel. 
And rudeness is a sure sign that you feel superior to somebody else and that you're only concerned about what you need right now. Lastly this morning, love does not insist on its own way, Paul says. You ever been around somebody that always has to be right? And even after they know that they're wrong, but they're going to keep arguing that they're right because they have to be right. Um, and they know that they're wrong, but they, they, they could still tell you that they're right. Um, politicians have this problem, uh, both parties, by the way. Um, in my experience, I've found that there's two basic kinds of people in the world. There are those who are always thinking about what life owes them. And there are those who are always thinking about what, what they owe life. It's true in the church. It's true in business. It's true in families. There are those who are always asking, what can you give me? What can you do for me? And there are others who are saying, what can I do? What can I do for the church? What can I do for my family? What can I do for my marriage? And that's a much healthier way uh, to, uh, to approach the world. Remember what JFK said many years ago? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Well, fill in lots of other things. Ask not what your spouse can do for you, but what you can do for your spouse. Ask not what the church can do for you, but what you can do for the church. Ask not what the community of Nashville can do for you. Ask what you can do for the community of Nashville. A sense of entitlement, a sense of privilege, a sense of I deserve better than this can ruin a relationship faster than anything else. And in my experience with counseling couples who are either going to get married or who are already married and maybe they're having problems is somebody has a disconnect between their expectations and between reality. Somebody thinks that they deserve more, they deserve better, and they're not grateful for what they have. And that usually is what lies at the heart of it. Not all the time, but usually there's this disconnect between what I think I deserve, where I think I should be, and where I feel that I am. If we always insist on our own way in life, if we are never satisfied with what we have in life, then, then it's going to be very difficult for us to find peace and to love other people. Now I want to say a couple quick words about joy as we close. I believe that love and joy are related. I don't think you're going to experience joy in your life until you first learn how to love. Without love, there is no joy. Joy is found in learning to be present. Uh, joy cannot be found in the future. It cannot be found in the past. You know, Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will bring troubles of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. If we don't learn to live in the present, to appreciate the present, then we're not going to experience joy in our life. The first year we did the father-daughter dance that we're having this afternoon, I, I, Montgomery was probably uh, four, maybe. And I mean, I don't remember how many people came, but you talk about joy, dancing with your only daughter. You got to live in the present. You plan for the future, and we're going to worry about the future, but if you can't live in the present, you're not going to experience joy. Joy is found in people, not things. This is a misconception in our culture. Uh, it, even if you have nice things, even if you have a vacation house or a nice car, the only way you're going to find joy in it is if you got somebody that you love there with you. It's found in people, not things. What are the things in life that give us joy? It differs from person to person, but I've always said sustaining a marriage over the years. 
Uh, raising children, even though it's really difficult, it gives us joy. Going and visiting the sick, serving the less fortunate, going on a mission trip, going out of your way to help somebody, listening to a friend that's struggling, uh, helping somebody who's, who's dealing with depression, these are the things that give us joy. And I also think that joy happens when we slow down. It happens when we stop rushing from one thing to the next, feeling like we're going to conquer the world in one day. You have to slow down to experience joy. I'll close with this story. On Wednesday afternoon, um, it was raining. I went over to Abe's Garden uh, to visit one of our oldest and longest tenured church members, uh, Kay Butterworth. A lot of you know Kay. Her, her daughter, Pat Malone, is a member here. She's one of three or four generations in this church. And I went over to Abe's Garden, and I walked in, and, and it was hymn time at Abe's Garden. They were singing hymns, and everybody had a hymn book out. So I got my hymn book, and I sat down next to Kay. And it was funny because there was, like, a, you know, all kinds of people. It's a memory care place, so it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's older. It could be different age people. But, uh, but there's Mr. Smith over here, and he, he made the request for, uh, I want, you know, I want to sing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And so we sang the song, and everybody says, oh, Mr. Smith, that was a great request. And I look over, he's asleep. <laughs> but I sat there with Kay and sang some of those great church hymns that we sing here every week. And here's a lady that's in her mid to late 90s, maybe didn't even recognize me, I don't really know. But I found more joy in that moment sitting there singing those hymns. And it would have been so easy for me to say, I don't have time for this. I got so much work I got to do at the office. What a blessing that was. We miss out on joy in life when we don't do more things like that. Amen.